today, I'd like to talk about Jesus. Uh, the title of my lesson is, Who is Jesus? I know that's kind of the kind of question you don't really want to hear me saying to you, but uh, I want to look at different perspectives of Jesus and why they're important to us. Uh, every principle of Christ's will is focused on him whether it's daily living, worship, salvation, or any other issue. And since Jesus is such an obvious focal point of everything in our faith, it's appropriate that we study him from these different perspectives. And the scriptures present us with many different views of Jesus, and each view reveals important truths about Christ and our relationship with him. The first perspective that I'd like to look at is Jesus as the creator. We can find this in Genesis 1, there verse 26. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. As we can see in this account of the creation, God was not alone in the creation. He had others, which we believe are Jesus and the Holy Spirit, with him, assisting him. So we know Jesus created. And if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 says, uh, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. This passage speaks of Jesus and how he created all things. As verse 17 says, by him all things consist. Also in Revelations 3 and verse 14, John says, and under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right, these things say, or excuse me, uh, this isn't John speaking, this is Jesus speaking to John. I'll restart here, but it says, Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This passage is often misused to suggest that Jesus is the first to be created. And the term beginning here actually means the originator. So instead, it's actually the opposite. Jesus is the creator, not the created. And the significance of this can be found in Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Isaiah 45, verse 9 says, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. 
Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. The significance of Jesus being co-creator with God is that he has power and authority, not just because he's God's son, but because he helped create us. By presenting Jesus as a creator, the scriptures show Jesus has the authority to tell us what to do, and he has the power to back it up. The next uh, perspective I'd like to look at is Jesus as the promised Messiah. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto thee, unto him ye shall hearken. This passage and countless others from the Old Testament times prophesy about the coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus. The Old Testament is full of prophecies referring to Jesus. One site that I looked at said that there were at least 353 prophecies of Christ that have already been fulfilled. And I don't know if, you know, there may very well be more even, but that's what's known, what I've seen. And uh, we know that the prophecies about Jesus have been fulfilled. If you'll turn to Acts 13, verses 23 through 27. The writer here says, Of this man's seed, speaking of, of David's seed, of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Uh, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. Uh, many places in the New Testament show how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies regarding the expected Christ. And this one here is interesting because it kind of lumps all the prophets together into one voice, all anticipating the Messiah. And as verse 27 reveals, the Jews fulfilled these same prophecies they frequently were read about killing Jesus. And the significance of this can be found in 2 Peter 1, verse 19. Second Peter 1, verse 19 says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. 
Peter represents this unanimous prophetic voice as being sure in his testimony about Jesus. By presenting Jesus as the promised Messiah, the scriptures show God's promises are sure and that Jesus is not just a myth that the Jews made up over time. He was an actual, he actually came and did exactly as the prophecies told, and there's still some prophecies that were waiting to come true. The next uh, perspective I'd like to look at is that of the crucified Savior. This is one that we think of probably the most. Jesus is our crucified Savior, and we observe that his death every day, or every first day of the week with uh, communion. But if you'll turn to Romans 6, verse 23. Romans 6 and 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The fact that sin requires the, de- the penalty of death demands that this penalty be paid in order for sin to be reckoned with. And even in the Old Testament, we know that God required blood for those who sinned. There were very strict laws about sacrifices that had to be made to cleanse your sin. And even they could do those sacrifices, take their most spotless livestock, and still it would only carry it back so far. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that was finally able to save us from our sins. And as we know, Jesus was crucified, and I'd like to read an account of that in John 19, there verses 16 through 30. John 19, 16 through 30, it says, Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into the place called the place of a school, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, and every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. 
Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own house. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a vessel, a, excuse me, there was set a vessel full of vinegar. And they filled the sponge with vinegar and put it on a high soap and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. <clears throat> the scriptures give us four chilling accounts of Christ's torture and death on the cross. And each account reveals the terrible treatment of an innocent man. But Jesus was not just an innocent man. Jesus was the creator of the universe. He could have easily stopped the ill treatment, but he chose to suffer it. And there's a song, we y'all sing it here a lot. Uh, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He chose not to. And that was, I mean, a very, you know, it had to be a hard choice to make because we wouldn't have, if we had that power, I don't think we would have ever made it past. We, uh, we probably wouldn't have even been at the garden before we were ready to destroy the, the world. So uh, the significance of Jesus being our crucified Savior, I believe, is pretty important. But I want us to look at John 15, verses 13 through 14. John 15, verses 13 through 14, if I can find it, says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. And that's Jesus speaking. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was our Creator dying for His unworthy human creation. By portraying Jesus as our crucified Savior, the, the scriptures show Jesus' love for us and that he died for us so we could be elevated to that level of friend. Jesus took our rightful place on that cross, just like he physically took the place of the murderer Barabbas, as we can see in all four accounts of Jesus' trial. He was punished for our sins so that we could walk free. The next way I'd like to look at Jesus, the way I think that the Bible shows Jesus, is the resurrected Christ. And again, this is a very important way to look at Christ for us. And if we'll look at John 20, verses 1 through 8, scriptures say, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene, when it was yet dark, into the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we are, know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the first disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying, yet he did not, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen cloths lying. 
and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first into the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. We know that Jesus was resurrected, and uh, we know the story that three days after his death, they found the tomb of Jesus empty. And there were several people who saw the tomb was empty, and many saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. If you'll turn also now to Acts 2, Verses 32 and 33. Scripture says, This Jesus Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witness. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye see now and hear. The apostles preached the resurrection as a fact. No one can or will ever successfully demonstrate that the doctrine was wrong, and no one could ever show an occupied tomb or discredit the hundreds of witnesses that we have in this Bible. Jesus was resurrected. We have accounts. It says Peter, another disciple, went in, and many of the others came in also, and then all of he appeared to many of his disciples later on in Acts, or earlier in Acts, excuse me. And so we we have a very sure word that he indeed was resurrected. And uh, if you'll turn to Romans six, <clears throat> Romans six verses nine through thirteen, the scriptures say. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but ye yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of the righteousness unto God. <clears throat> the power behind the resurrection empowers us to live a new life and not just be enslaved by sin. Also in Romans 8, verse 11, Scriptures say, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. If God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he has the power to save us from our sins. Because the Scriptures represent Jesus as a resurrected Christ, we have the hope of eternal life with God in heaven. The next way I'd like to look at Jesus is that of the lawgiver. And if you'll turn to Genesis 49 and verse 10. Genesis 49 
verse 10 says, The the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, till Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And also in Isaiah 33, verse 22, Isaiah 33, verse 22 says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. The prophecy that the kings would be of the tribe of Judah also pointed to the fact that the Messiah or king would come to rule, would come from the tribe of Judah. Though the nation of Judah was a physical fulfillment of this prophecy, Christ the Lord is an eternal and spiritual fulfillment of that same prophecy. And Jesus is our lawgiver. We can see this in James 4 and verse 12. James 4 verse 12 says... There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou who art thou that judgest another? Today Jesus is our lawgiver, and he passed down his will to man, and we must obey him. And the significance of this is found in James two and verse twelve, which says, So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. This fact reminds us that we must obey the will of Christ because that same law that he's given us will be the standard by which we are judged. And in Revelations 20 and verse 12, the scriptures say, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, according to their works. Jesus is going to compare our actions to this book on the final day. So, he's going to compare. He'll have our life right here the Bible right here, and he's going to see where we followed the Bible and where we followed the ways of the world, and that we will all be judged. The scriptures, there are many verses that talk about the judgment. We should be prepared for that. And lastly, kind of going along with the lawgiver, I'd like to look at Jesus as the returning judge. If you'll turn to John 5, Verses 22 and 23. John 5, 22 and 23 says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which has sent him. Also in uh, Thessal- S- Second Thessalonians 1, 
verses 7 through 10. I'm on 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10, it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. God has appointed Christ to judge the world. He's coming back someday to judge all of humanity, and that includes us, obviously. Uh, if you'll turn to Romans 14 and verse 10. Romans 14, verse 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Today, uh, excuse me, someday we will all appear before Christ in judgment. We know that. That's been taught for, I guess, since Jesus' time. We will have the judgment. And the significance, though it's very obvious to us, can be found in Acts 17, there, verses 30 and 31, which says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men, all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. The fact that Christ will, will judge us calls upon each of us to repent from sin and turn to him. By representing Jesus as our returning judge, the scriptures show that you are accountable for your actions and compel you to submit your life to him. 